This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Christine Blashford. www.wokeupthismorning.co.uk The Price of Love by Arnold Bennett. Chapter 2. Louis' Discovery. Part 1. Louis Fores was late at his grand-aunt's because he had by a certain preoccupation, during a period of about an hour, been rendered oblivious of the passage of time. The real origin of the affair went back nearly sixty years to an indecorous episode in the history of the Malden family. At that date, before Mrs. Malden had even met Austin Malden, her future husband, Austin's elder brother, Athelston, who was well established as an earthenware broker in London, had a conjugal misfortune which reached its climax in the matrimonial court and left the injured and stately Athelston with an incomplete household, a spoiled home, and the sole care of two children, a boy and a girl. These children were, almost of necessity, clumsily brought up. The girl married the half-brother of a lieutenant-general Fores, and Louis Fores was their son. The boy married an American girl, and had issue Julian Molden and some daughters. At the age of eighteen, Louis Fores, amiable, personable, and an orphan, was looking for a career. He had lived in the London suburb of Barnes, and under the influence of a father, whose career had chiefly been to be the stepbrother of lieutenant-general Fores. He was in full possession of the conventionally snobbish ideals of the suburb, reinforced by more than a tincture of the stupendous and unsurpassed snobbishness of the British army. He had no money, and therefore the liberal professions and the higher division of the civil service were closed to him. He had the choice of two activities. He might tout for wine, motor-cars, or mineral waters on commission, like his father, or he might enter a bank. His friends were agreed that nothing else was conceivable he chose the living grave. It is not easy to enter the living grave, but August influences aiding, he entered it with eclat at a salary of seventy pounds a year, and it closed over him. He would have been secure till his second death had he not defiled the beer. The day of judgment occurred, the grave opened, and he was thrown out with ignominy, but ignominy unpublished. The August influences, by simple cash and for their own sakes, had saved him from exposure and a jury. In order to get rid of him, his protectors spoke well of him, emphasising his many good qualities, and he was deported to the five towns, properly enough since his grandfather had come thence, and there joined the staff of Batchgrew and Sons, thanks to the kind intervention of Mrs. Molden. At the end of a year, John Batchgrew told him to go, and told Mrs. Molden that her grandnephew had a fault. Mrs. Molden was very sorry. At this juncture, Louis Fores, without intending to do so, would certainly have turned Mrs. Molden's last years into a tragedy, had he not in the very nick of time inherited about a thousand pounds. He was rehabilitated. He had money now. He had a fortune. He had ten thousand pounds. He had any sum you like, according to the caprice of rumour. He lived on his means for a little time, frequenting the Municipal School of Art at the Wedgwood Institute at Bursley, and then Old Batchgrew had casually suggested to Mrs. Molden that there ought to be an opening for him with Jim Horrocleave, who was understood to be succeeding with his patent special processes for earthenware manufacture. Mr. Horrocleave, a man with a chin, would not accept him for a partner, having no desire to share profits with anybody, but on the faith of his artistic tendency, and Mrs. Molden's correct yet highly misleading catalogue of his virtues, he took him at a salary, in return for which Louis was to be the confidential employee who could and would do anything, including design. 
and now louis was the step-nephew of a lieutenant-general a man of private means and of talent and a trusted employee with a fine wage all under one skin he shone in bursley and no wonder he was very active at horrocleves he not only designed shapes for vases and talked intimately with jim horrocleve about fresh projects but he controlled the petty cash the expenditure of petty cash grew as was natural in a growing business mr horrocleves soon got accustomed to that and apparently gave it no thought signing cheques instantly upon request but on the very day of mrs maldon's party after signing a cheque and before handing it to louis he had somewhat lengthily consulted his private cash-book and as he handed over the cheque had said let's have a squint at the petty cash-book to-morrow morning louis he said it gruffly but he was a gruff man he left early he might have meant anything or nothing louis could not decide which or rather from five o'clock to seven he had come to alternating decisions every five minutes part two it was just about at the time when louis ought to have been removing his paper cuff shields in order to start for mrs maldon's that he discovered the full extent of his debt to the petty cash-box he sat alone at a rough and dirty desk in the inner room of the works office surrounded by dust-covered sample vases and other vessels of all shapes sizes and tints specimens of horrocleve's art lustre ware a melancholy array of ingenious ugliness that nevertheless filled with pride its creators he looked through a dirt-obscured window, and with unseeing gaze surveyed a muddy, littered quadrangle, whose twilight was reddened by gleams from the engine-house. In this yard lay flat a sign that had been blown down from the façade of the manufactory six months before. Horrocleave. Art. Lustre. Ware. Within the room was another sign, itself fashioned in lustre-ware. Horrocleave. Art. Lustre. Ware and the envelopes and paper and bill-heads on the desk all bore the same legend horrocleave art lustre ware he owed seventy-three pounds to the petty cash-box and he was startled and shocked he was startled because for weeks past he had refrained from adding up the columns of the cash-book partly from idleness and partly from a desire to remain in ignorance of his own doings he had hoped for the best he had faintly hoped that the deficit would not exceed ten pounds or twelve he had been prepared for a deficit of twenty-five or even thirty but seventy-three really shocked nay it staggered it meant that in addition to his salary some thirty shillings a week had been mysteriously trickling through the incurable hole in his pocket not to mention other debts he well knew that to shillitoe alone his admirable tailor he owed eighteen pounds it may be asked how a young bachelor with private means and a fine salary living in a district where prices are low and social conventions not costly could have come to such a pass the answer is that louis had no private means and that his salary was not fine the thousand pounds had gradually vanished as a thousand pounds will in the refinements of material existence and in the pursuit of happiness his bank account had long been in abeyance his salary was three pounds a week many a member of the liberal professions many a solicitor for example brings up a family on three pounds a week in the provinces but for a lieutenant-general's nephew who had once had a thousand pounds in one lump three pounds a week was inadequate as a fact louis conceived himself art director of horrocleves and sincerely thought that as such he was ill-paid herein was one of his private excuses for eccentricity with the petty cash it might also be asked what louis had to show for his superb expenditure the answer is nothing with the seventy-three pounds desolatingly clear in his mind he quitted his desk in order to reconnoitre the outer and larger portion of the counting-house 
He went as far as the archway, and saw black smoke being blown downwards from heaven into Friendly Street. A policeman was placidly regarding the smoke as he strolled by, and Louis, though absolutely sure that the officer would not carry out his plain duty of summoning Horacles for committing a smoke nuisance, did not care for the spectacle of the policeman. He returned to the inner office and locked the door. The staff and the hands had all gone, save one or two piece-workers in the painting-shop across the yard. The night watchman, fresh from bed, was moving fussily about the yard. He nodded with respect to Louis through the grimy window. Louis lit the gas, and spread a newspaper in front of the window by way of blind. And then he began a series of acts on the pretty cash-book. The office clock indicated twenty past six. He knew that time was short, but he had a natural gift for the invention and execution of these acts, and he calculated that under half an hour would suffice for them. But when he next looked at the clock, the acts being accomplished, one hour had elapsed. It had seemed to him more like a quarter of an hour. Yet, as blotting-paper cannot safely be employed in such delicate calligraphic feats as those of Louis's, even an hour was not excessive for what he had done. An operator clumsier, less cool, less cursory, more cautious than himself, might well have spent half a night over the job. He locked up the book, washed his hands and face with remarkable celerity in a filthy lavatory basin, brushed his hair, removed his cuff-shields, changed his coat, and fled at speed, leaving the key of the office with the watchman. Part three. "'I suppose the old lady was getting anxious,' said he brightly, but in a low tone so that the old lady should not hear, as he shook hands with Rachel in the lobby. He had recognised her in front of him up the lane, had, in fact, nearly overtaken her, and she was standing at the open door when he mounted the steps. She had had just time to prove to Mrs. Maldon by a "'He's coming!' thrown through the sitting-room doorway that she had not waited for Louis Fores, and walked up with him. "'Yes,' Rachel replied in the same tone, most deceitfully leaving him under the false impression that it was the old lady's anxiety that had sent her out. She had then emerged scathless in reputation from the indiscreet adventure. The house was animated by the arrival of Louis. At once it seemed to live more keenly when he had crossed the threshold. And Louis found pleasure in the house, in the welcoming aspect of its interior, in Rachel's evident excited gladness at seeing him, in her honest and agreeable features, and in her sheer girlishness.' A few minutes earlier he had been in the sordid and dreadful office. Now he was in another and a cleaner, prettier world. He yielded instantly and fully to its invitation, for he had the singular faculty of being able to cast off care like a garment. He felt sympathetic towards women, and eager to employ for their contentment all the charm which he knew he possessed. He gave himself generously, in every gesture and intonation. "'Office, auntie, office!' he exclaimed, elegantly entering the parlour. "'Sackcloth, ashes, hello! Where's Julian? Is he late too?' When he had received the news about Julian Maldon, he asked to see the telegram, and searched out its place of origin, and drew forth a pocket-time-table, and remarked in a wise way that he hoped Julian would make the connection at Derby. Lastly, he predicted the precise minute at which Julian ought to be knocking at the front door, and both women felt their ignorant, puzzled inferiority in these recondite matters of travel, and the comfort of having an omniscient male in the house. Then, slightly drawing up his dark blue trousers with an accustomed movement, he carefully sat down on the Chesterfield, and stroked his soft black moustache, which was estimably long for a fellow of twenty-three, and patted his black hair. "'Rachel, you didn't fasten that landing-window after all,' said Mrs. Maldon, looking over Louis's head at the lady companion, who hesitated modestly near the door. "'I've tried, but I couldn't.' "'Neither could I, Mrs. Maldon,' said Rachel. "'I was thinking perhaps Mr. Fores wouldn't mind.' She did not explain that her failure to fasten the window had been more or less deliberate, since while actually tugging at the window she had been visited by the sudden delicious thought, how nice it would be to ask Louis Fores to do this hard thing for me. And now she had asked him. 
certainly louis jumped to his feet and off he went upstairs most probably if the sudden delicious thought had not skipped into rachel's brain he would never have made that critical ascent to the first floor a gas-jet burned low on the landing let's have a little light on the subject he cheerfully muttered to himself as he turned on the gas to the full then in the noisy blaze of yellow and blue light he went to the window and with a single fierce wrench he succeeded in pulling the catch into position he was proud of his strength it pleased him to think of the weakness of women it pleased him to anticipate the impressed thanks of the weak women for this exertion of his power on their behalf have you managed it so soon his aunt would exclaim and he would answer in a carefully off-hand way of course why not he was about to descend but he remembered that he must not leave the gas at full with his hand on the tap he glanced perfunctorily around the little landing the door of mrs Molden's bedroom was in front of him at right angles to the window by the door which was ajar stood a cane-seated chair underneath the chair he perceived a whitish package or roll that seemed to be out of place there on the floor he stooped and picked it up and as the paper wrestled peculiarly in his hand he could feel his heart give a swift bound he opened the roll it consisted of nothing whatever but bank-notes he listened intently with ear-cocked and rigid limbs and he could just catch the soothing murmur of women's voices in the parlour beneath the reverberating solemn pulse of the lobby clock part four louis fores had been intoxicated into a condition of poesy he was deliciously incapable of any precise thinking he could not formulate any theory to account for the startling phenomenon of a roll of banknotes loose under a chair on a first-floor landing of his great-aunt's house he could not even estimate the value of the roll he felt only that it was indefinitely prodigious but he had the most sensitive appreciation of the exquisite beauty of those pieces of papers they were not merely beautiful because they stood for delight and indulgence raising lovely visions of hosiers and jewellers shops and the night interiors of clubs and restaurants raising one clear vision of himself clasping a watch-bracelet on the soft arm of rachel who had so excitingly smiled upon him a moment ago they were beautiful in themselves the aspect and very texture of them were beautiful surpassing pictures and fine scenery they were the most poetic things in the world they transfigured the narrow gaslit first-floor landing of his great-aunt's house into a secret and unearthly grove of bliss he was drunk with quivering emotion and then as he gazed at the divine characters printed in sable on the rustling whiteness he was aware of a stab of ugly coarse pain up to the instant of beholding those banknotes he had been convinced that his operations upon the petty cash-book would be entirely successful and that the immediate future of horrocleves was assured of tranquillity he had been blandly certain that horrocleave held no horrid suspicion against him and that even if horrocleave's pate did conceal a dark thought it would be conjured at once away by the superficial reasonableness of the falsified accounts but now his mind was terribly and inexplicably changed and it seemed to him impossible to gull the acute and mighty horrocleave failure exposure disgrace ruin seemed inevitable and also intolerable it was astonishing that he should have deceived himself into an absurd security the bank-notes by some magic virtue which they possessed had opened his eyes to the truth and they presented themselves as absolutely indispensable to him they had sprung from naught they belonged to nobody they existed without a creative cause in the material world and they were indispensable to him could it be conceived that he should lose his high and brilliant position in the town that two policemen should hustle him into the black van that the gates of a prison should clang behind him it could not be conceived it was monstrously inconceivable the bank-notes he saw them wavy as through a layer of hot air a heavy knock on the front door below shook him and the floor and the walls he heard the hurried feet of rachel the opening of the door and julian's harsh hoarse voice julian then was not quite an hour late after all 
The stir in the lobby seemed to be enormous, and very close to him. Mrs. Maldon had come forth from the parlour to greet Julian on his birthday. Louis stuck the banknotes into the side-pocket of his coat, and as it were automatically his mood underwent a change, violent and complete. "'I'll teach the old lady to drop notes all over the place,' he said to himself. "'I'll just teach her.' and he pictured his triumph as a wise male when during the course of the feast his great-aunt should stumble on her loss and yield to senile feminine agitation and he should remark superiorly with elaborate calm here is your precious money auntie a good thing it was i and not burglars who discovered it let this be a lesson to you where was it it was on the landing carpet if you please that's where it was and the nice old creature's pathetic relief as he went jauntily downstairs there remained nothing of his mood of intoxication except a still thumping heart End of chapter 2